Greetings, my name is Chad Lewis. I'm a pastor here at Sojourn, and we're journeying through the book of James, and here we are on, on week three, and the subject is temptation. And one of my jobs as a pastor here is to live my life before you, honestly, authentically, and to show you how holy I am so you can mimic that in your life. If you're visiting with us, this is all kind of a joke here at first. So I'm gonna share with you some of the ways I overcome temptation. The first one is one that I don't even struggle with. I have never struggled with gluttony, never, when it comes to boiled cabbage and cauliflower. Never struggled with it. I know, all right. I've never been envious or coveted, never. Someone's my little pony collection. I just haven't. You might say, Chad, we knew you were holy, but my goodness, that's amazing. And of course, this silly illustration, you might already be making the connection in your mind. It's like, Chad, those aren't temptations because you don't desire those things. And I say, okay, let's keep that in mind. I could also share that I do struggle with gluttony to this very day. Pizza, I can take it down. I can eat my feelings. As I get older, for some reason, cereal has a big draw for me. I can eat pounds and pounds of cereal. I can struggle with deception because I don't want my family to know I'm eating all the cereal, so I can just take a little bit from each one and I mix it together and then eat it. They're here today, so now they know my secret. I have been and can be continually envious or covet people's status or influence. Maybe since I, I play music and do some recording and stuff, I can listen to a, a new album and just say, man, if I could just do an album that good or have those sounds or whatever it may be. And I can struggle with those things. And the list can go on and on and on, but those are attached to my desires. And the truth is, we were birthed with desires. We're created in the image of God. Desire in and of itself is not bad, it's actually good. It's a gift from God. And pre-fall, those desires, beautiful, and they can still be beautiful at times, but there's no desire we have that's not touched by sin. And those desires can go south really quickly. As we're thinking about James speaking here today, and he's gonna talk about temptation, let's remember the context as we are doing this the sermon series on faith works. It's a twofold meaning. The first one is that faith does works. Faith produces works. As my faith grows, as I trust God more, as I love him more, you will see fruit coming forth from your life. That's what is produced from a life that's living in faith. And the second part, second meaning we, we were saying with this series is that faith works. It actually does what it says it does. It leads to a life that's flourishing. And a lot of this flourishing is not external flourishing. It can be at times, but what it's talking about in the scriptures is an internal flourishing. Hope, joy, peace, patience, life on the inside that gives love away, that sacrifice, has a posture of surrender, that's not as attached to the things of this world, more attached to God and the kingdom that he has for us. That's in the here and now, but it'll be fully realized in the future. And so James is talking to Christians. He's a good pastor. He's rooted in a context in Jerusalem. And these Christians are facing a lot of trials, a lot of tribulations. Persecution is driving the church out and they're spreading, fleeing, uh, imprisonment and death. And so God uses that as we look through the book of Acts not long ago 
that he uses that as a means to evangelize the world. But in the midst of all of this, they had some really good times, and then boom, the suffering, trial, and persecution hits, intense. And James says, when tempted, and it naturally flows, when trials come into our lives, we will see temptation come forth. It'll be waiting at our doorstep. So I wanna look at the three points in your outline regarding temptation. It's a huge subject. No way we can cover all of that. We could talk about Jesus being tempted using God's word uh, from Deuteronomy and other things to battle that, him being rooted in his belovedness. We could talk about different temptations we fight. But as we're looking at James, I wanna look at three simple things. The first one is the certainty of temptation. And then look secondly at the source of temptation. And then finally, the salvation that God gives us in the midst of temptation. And it was interesting this morning, I was uh, sitting in my office before the first service and Pastor James Santos is one of my dearest friends on earth and he comes in and prays for me and hangs out on Sunday morning some. And he came in and he said he was coming in with his 75 children this morning. <laughs> if you know him, he's got five, but they, there's a lot of them, him and Tara. But he was coming in and his seven-year-old daughter, Sophie, was walking along and just said, Daddy, who's, who's preaching today? And he said, well, Pastor Chad is. And she went, oh, I had a dream about him last night. And it was really interesting. And this is serious. There's no punchline. Because James has had dreams about my life in the past and we talk about it. And we can talk about theological beliefs on, on things like that. But they've been meaningful to me. But she had a dream last night. And James said, well, what was it about? And she said, well, we were playing hide and go seek. And me and my friends were playing and Pastor Chad was looking for us. And when he found us, he said, what are you doing, Sophie? And she said, well, we're, we're playing hide and go seek. We're hiding. And I said, well, why would you wanna do that? Why would you wanna hide? And whether we are, I'll just tell you what I think it means, what James thought is like, the invitation is that we aren't called to hide. We can come out of hiding and we can be in a community where we, in our guilt, fear, and shame, we can just hide all the time, hide the secret parts of our hearts, hide the temptations we face, the things we struggle with. And in that hiding, there's not life. And I, I, that's my prayer this morning as we look at God's word, as we look and see that, man, we all struggle. We all struggle. And a lot of the similarities that we have is that if we trace those desires backward, we, we do want to be safe. We long to be comforted. We long to be known and loved. We long for intimacy. But the outworkings of those desires, once they get twisted, they can look a lot different for some people running to pornography. I'm doing a lot of study on that uh, with, with the pastors to say, this is like an epidemic in our society and it rewires the brain. It does all sorts of stuff. I'm looking at secular books, Christian books, just say, what does it look like for us to be a church that helps people come out of hiding with that and find relief in life? For others, alcoholism. For others, maybe overeating. For others, explosive anger or just eating despair every day. Whatever it may be, we all struggle. And so with all this in mind, let's look at first the certainty of temptation. Verse 13, first two words. James says, when tempted, when tempted. James doesn't start off saying, if you're tempted, because you're less mature than other Christians. If you're tempted because you're a JV player, you're not made it, you haven't made it to varsity yet. He, he just says, when tempted. And when we look at the whole council of scripture, we know that 
Every human is tempted. We can't be certain of many things in this life, but we can be sure that we will face temptation. Sometimes they will wage war against our soul. Sometimes they'll be subtle. We won't even notice them. But the truth is, daily, in and out, we will be tempted. And I start here because as I reach my mid-40s, I've been here pastoring for 11 years, did some coaching and teaching in my past, worked with a homeless ministry in Atlanta. What I've noticed from those who are living on the street to those who are very, very wealthy, there's a common struggle for all of us, right? It's to doubt God's goodness and to run after the things of this world. And it's when we're tempted, we will be tempted. And in the context of James, remember, we're saying that when trials come, when suffering comes, it's very easy for us to fall victim to temptation. And so I think this is a subtle thing that I notice in my heart. I can, I can intellectualize it and just say, I know this is true, but this is what I experience in my soul sometimes, and I know it's experienced in this community, is that we will equate temptation with failure. If you're tempted, then you've failed. If you've had a thought come into your mind, you're a failure. So is that true? Of course, like theologically, we say, of course not. Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sin. So the question is, why do we often equate temptation with failure? And I think a lot of times our, our reasoning goes like this. It's like, what kind of person would I be if I have this thought? What type of person must I be if I had this drawing? And the quick answer I would give you is just probably human, probably human. As a person, you will be drawn to things that are not good, that are not true, that are not beautiful. I am, you will be. But temptation is not equivalent to sin. And one of the things I think when we think temptation is failure, I think we can be more apt to give in to the temptation in and of itself. Because like, man, if I'm already struggling with these thoughts, I might as well act out on it because it's, I've already lost. We just, no, 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 no. Remember, temptation is not sin. It's what we do with the temptation. It can give birth to sin, but can also drive us to the Father's heart. It can drive us to community for help. And it can be the very means by which we are transformed into mature brothers and sisters. And I think in community group, maybe a little tweak in a question that we ask sometimes, because you might experience it like this, and the question in and of itself isn't bad, but maybe the way we experience it is like, hey man, do you struggle with temptation this week? Yeah, I struggled, I struggled. Oh man, I'm sorry. Whew, okay. Because what we would think presupposes that question is that if you don't struggle with temptation, that's a victory. I'm gonna rephrase that, that didn't even make sense. If we don't struggle with temptation, we're victorious. And the truth is, if you're not struggling with temptation, maybe it's a lighter season, maybe you're not even aware of what you're being tempted to do, maybe you've already given yourself over to the thing over and over again. Victory is not equivalent to not struggling with temptation. Our call is to struggle and that's, that's what we do, right? But not always. So maybe a better question in community group is this. Hey man, how was the struggle with temptation this week? Did you find yourself hiding or did you run to community to God? Are you doubting God's goodness? Tell me what's going on in your life. Let's, let's hear that. Let's hear that and receive them where they are and, and help bear those burdens. 
If you're facing temptation, and you will, it's really easy to doubt God's goodness. And we see this promise in 1 Corinthians 10, what Paul is doing, he's writing about who God is and what he knows from the history of God's people. The Israelites, they wandered in the desert. They doubted God's goodness, but it was a trial. They saw God do amazing things, but the trial was they were hungry, they were thirsty. They didn't see a home in sight. And even when they did see the promised land, the, the report was like, These, there's giants in the land. And so they doubted God's goodness. And Paul's admonition to the Corinthian church was this. He said, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So and think about this, this humbling request. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And hear this, and God is faithful. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Trials come. Temptations wage war against our soul. But God is faithful. God is faithful. And a lot of times the way of escape, we, we wouldn't even like it anyway because a lot of times it's reaching out for help. It's coming out of hiding. The very thing our soul needs in James chapter five as we continue to go through the book, it says, confess your sins one to another so you can be healed. And the truth is the invitation as we, as we come out of hiding, as we have close personal friendships. For me, that's Pastor James and my friend Scott Holman. And we, we talk about the inner workings of our mind and our heart. And we we encourage each other through that. And I'm known by them and I know them. And it feels like I have advocates in this world and it's so essential. Common to mankind. Paul's saying, be humble. Don't be prideful. Don't be prideful. Remember, we all can fall. Temptation's common to mankind and you will be tempted. Secular research uh, even shows that anticipating temptation may reduce unethical behavior. So those who prepare in advance for what they might face are more ready when it comes. And research shows there is success in that. You struggle with maybe wanting to take money. Don't put yourself in that situation. And the list could go on and on. But we see this in God's word, the principles. Even, even in the book of Proverbs, the wisdom literature, in the first two chapters of the father, older father speaking to the son, he's saying, Learn from me. Learn what wisdom is. Don't go down these paths because they'll end in destruction. In chapter one, he's saying, don't get in with the wrong crowd, the ones who want to steal and hurt people because that leads to the no life life. That's going to lead to death and destruction. He says, you'll be tempted by an adulterous woman maybe at some point in your life. Don't fall victim to that. And so we want to hear these things. And even part of asking for wisdom from God is being aware of the relationships we have and learning from those who are older in our midst. There are some older men that I go to that without them, I would have steered right or left quite often. And they are gracious to me. And one of the things they remind me over and over again is, Chad, you're doing well. Keep on the path. Keep on going. You're okay. Reach out for help. We're in this together. And that has rooted me. And that's why I still am here. We need this in our life. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. So we're certain we will be tempted, certain of it. And I think one of the greatest things that can happen in our life um, 
is that we can stop being so shocked that temptations come. It's like, oh, I can't believe I'm tempted again to that. Oh. Like, no guilt, no shame, no fear. We're in the Father's hands. Come out of hiding. Second point, the source of temptation. Source of temptation. James is really clear here. He leaves no doubt. He says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. The source of temptation, not God, never can be. God never desires for his precious children to follow the path of sin. He doesn't desire that. Over and over, and in the last two years, I've really been turning my attention uh, because I I think one of the greatest calls of our life, uh, John 17, Lord, I pray that they would know eternal life, to, and eternal life is this, have eternal life knowing you and the one you've sent. And we see Paul's prayers in Ephesians 1 and 3 where he's like, pray that you, you would know the depth, the height, the width of God's love for you. Be rooted in this love to know God, to know God. And so I've started looking at scripture and, and just trying to mark and, and see points of, of Old Testament, New Testament where it says, God desires, God wants, God said this, because I wanna know God's heart. What kind of heart does God have? God longs for you to choose life. What must that God be like if our God desires us to choose life? If he desires for us to have peace, to have eternal life with him, what, what must he be like? His heart is bigger than we could dream or imagine. So the source of temptation is never God. So We get this, don't we? We think about trials coming into our life, think about the suffering. We even think about the first century Christians here when they saw Pentecost take place, they see thousands saved, they see these miraculous things. People are sharing things, they have unity, the church is exploding, it's doing amazing things, and then boom, persecution hits. People are losing their homes, being driven away from their towns. Their friends have been arrested, some of their friends have been killed, family members killed. Do you think at that moment that they would doubt that God was still working? It's like, of course, definitely. And this letter from James is a a balm to their soul saying, God's not tempting you to do evil. Endure, because his desire in verse 12, that you might have a crown of life. Keep eternity before your eyes, brothers and sisters. James writes this in verse 14. Each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And so we see that first movement, we get hooked with one of our desires, one of our our lusts, one of the things we're drawn to, and then we follow it and it becomes sin. And so that's a first birth in this verse 15, but then there's another birth here. When it's full grown, it gives birth to death. And I'm not exactly sure that this is the, the meaning of James in this, but I, I was just thinking about a friend who's recently walked away from the church, a dear friend for the last 10 years, dear, dear friend, walked away from the church, walked away from his job, walked away from his family. And I saw the sin come out that was hidden. It was hidden for months and then a year and then all of these things, it just spiraled, 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 and he was hiding. And we could tell something was amiss, but it was like, ah, oh, if we reach in, he'd deflect. 
And then that sin continued on and there could have been an interruption and there's still hope for him, you know. But we see destruction in his life now. He wasn't real happy before, but I can tell you now he is miserable. He's miserable and our hearts break. But he's brought destruction upon his family, upon his friends, upon himself. And God's desire is like, no, don't do that. Come to me. Come to me. The source of our sin is not outside us. The source of our sin is inside. And it's interesting here, James doesn't say, the devil made me do it. We know from the full counsel of scripture, Satan is all about tempting and putting in situations in his demonic realm as well. We see that with Adam and Eve. We see it with Jesus. But ultimately, the temptation becomes sin when us, our internal world, our desires get hooked and we act out upon it. So we all have a heart problem and it revolves around these desires. And so I, I have a, a thought for us. Okay, if the problem is desire, what we can do is we can all get together and we can just have a desire killing party. If we kill all our desires, then we probably won't sin as much. I said, well, that doesn't sound too good. I've actually heard people say like, oh, you gotta kill all your desires, you gotta kill it. And there is a sense when we think about sin, put to death sin, but desires are gifts from God. He's given us a desire to taste food and to eat, to taste and see the Lord is good, the desire to enjoy a beautiful sunrise, a desire to laugh until our bellies hurt with friends and family. Desire is a gift from God. So we don't wanna kill desire. What we wanna do is direct it towards that which is most beautiful, that which is the greatest good, that thing which is truest, and that is God himself. But our, our desires have to be educated. We can't just, I was reading through Psalm 32 in between the services and the Lord's promise, he said, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. But here's the admonition. Don't be like the horse or mule stubborn horse or mule. They need a bitter bridle or they won't go where you want them to. And the picture is, I, I believe, is just this, our desires can take us so many different places and God will reign us and sometimes let us have what we think we want. But the truth is to desire something and to know that it's not good to say, Lord, I wanna run to you in the midst of this. Lord, teach my desires, educate me. Our friends at Crosspoint Ministry, Rich Plass and Jim Cofield, they've been pastoring many of us for the last decade. They have a weekend retreat just focused on desire. And it's kind of countercultural. I think it's underdeveloped in our Christian church this day, these days. Uh, but they say they took it, uh, started with some work from Larry Crabb and then added to it. But I wanted to share with you what they say are the four objects of desire. It starts with the least and moves to the greatest. And to remember once again, the issue is not with desire, but it's what we place our desires in and what we're trying to get from these desires. So the first category they have is our casual desires. Casual desires are things. We can desire a home, that's a great thing. That's a beautiful thing. We can have hospitality, safety, raise our families, have friends. Desire a car to get around, desire I like old things, so I like old things from barns. It's 
trash to some people. It's like, hey, that's my treasure. Put some rust on it and just give it to me. I'd be like, all right, all right. But I, I like those things. But what's the issue? Those things are a desire, but they're not an ultimate desire. That's why materialism always leads down a path of destruction. It's like it can't fill you up. Get more and more and more. You can't get enough to fill that hole inside. And that's a grace of God. So the first desire we have, casual desires. The second one is what they term critical desires. And these are experiential desires. We desire to experience things, to experience good food, to experience nature, to go on a trip across the world, to experience being able to make something with our own hands and be competent in things. That's a good desire. But we know if that becomes our God, that, that'll lead down a bad path as well. So we have things, and then what's greater than that is experiences. Then we have a third category, crucial desires, people and relationships. We desire relationships to be known and to know, to be loved and to love. And that's good. That's really good. Without that, our lives will not be fulfilled. And if you're in the world, because of common grace, you could draw a line right there and you could say these categories are true and say, that's why those who have the greatest fulfillment in their life are the ones with the depth of relationship. That's why when people on their deathbed have regrets, they regret not being in better intimate relationships or having forgiveness given earlier or whatever it may be. But the truth is each of these are desires and they get greater as, as you go down the list. But the final desire is the ultimate desire and it's what Crosspoint calls the core desire and our ultimate desire is for God. Our ultimate desire is for God to know him, to be known, to love him, to be loved. And all of our desire, our greatest desire is directed towards communion. Communion with God, the one who created our soul, to know him, to love him. And that's why relationships are so important as well because it models, it can model what the kingdom is like and where we'll be brothers and sisters for all eternity. God's desire is that through trials, through tribulations, that we will know him more, know his heart more, but it's hard, it's difficult because you can list out all of these categories and you can list out ways that each one of these have led you to disappointment. Things couldn't fill me up. Man, I, I just wish I could have got better. My experiences, I got a retreat. Man, I was so pumped about it. It rained the whole time. People disappoint me. I thought they would do this, this, and this. God's disappointed me. Well, how? He feels so distant. These things happen to me. And for these words to even come off my lips, there's maybe even a gut reaction, like, oh, whoa. But the truth is we live with disappointed desires. And those desires can lead us down two paths. The first path is the one to make us more mature, to know him more, to trust him, even though we have to wait or they can lead us down the path of cynicism to embracing sin and running away. Let's remember what God's desire is in verse four from last two weeks. Let's let perseverance finish its work 
so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything, not lacking in anything. And then in verse 12, he says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. What's our destiny? A crown of life. God desires life for us. And I I thought about it some years ago. I, I got married to Ginger when I was 32. I had uh, pursued about 78 women with the desire to marry them. It's not true, but I pursued some women, had a broken engagement, led me some great despair. And one, one of the moments in the depth of that despair, I, I was reading C.S. Lewis. I don't even remember what it came from, but I, probably mere Christianity because that's where 80% of the quotes come from. But I, I was thinking about this. I, I was thinking about the timeline of my life And I was thinking about God seeing me in the midst of my despair and depression in this moment. And he was able to mourn with me, weep with me, hold me. But at the same time, behind behind this frowning providence, there was a smiling face because he not only sees that moment, he saw me in the future. Maybe on my wedding day. I, I didn't know if I'd be married at that time or not. But the joy of my wedding day. And ultimately, the joy of Uh, the new heavens and new earth. He can see it all. And it did something to my soul. It's like, I'm okay. I still hurt. I still was depressed. But that was trust. And we can look so quickly at the moment in time in which we're suffering and it can be intense and unbearable. And we can say, God, I don't get it. He's saying, trust me, my child, I have good for you. I have good for you. You may not see it yet, but I have good for you. Trust me. So we get to the last point. We are certain temptation will come. We know the sources from within us. We can cry out with Paul, what a wretched man I am who will save me from this body of death and declare, praise be to God. Praise be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The salvation amidst temptation, verse 16. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. In this last section where he says, don't be deceived, We're remembering once again when trials come and the Israelites and ourselves, we can say, where's God? God is not good. And when God looks bad, sin looks good. When God looks bad, sin looks good. It's like, man, I can't fill up with anything. I'm gonna fill up with something. I'm gonna run to something rather than waiting. And our picture of God can get so skewed. And he says, don't be deceived, brothers and sisters. God is not a frowning God. He's not a distant God. He's not a a God that looks like Simon Cowell from American Idol who's just shaking his head saying, that was terrible, that was terrible. He's a God with open arms saying, come. God of infinite joy. A God who can rejoice with us and mourn with us. A God who desires our hearts. 
And I think about God's desire and I think about the good gifts that he gives. Don't be deceived. He's given us so much. Father, he doesn't change. His posture never changes. He can't not love us any more than he does or any less because it's just, it's infinite and it's his love. He's unchanging, not like shifting shadows, the father of lights. And I wanna end by just sharing a few of the gifts that God has given us. He's given us his word and we know this. Some people calculate 3,000 plus promises. Some people calculate up to 8,000 promises in the scripture. Y'all can go try to count, but it's somewhere between 3,000 and 8,000. Even in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, we saw a few promises. God's faithful, it's a promise. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can endure. There's a way of escape, promise. I'll never leave you or forsake you, it's a promise. And we see in God's word who he is, his heart. We see Jesus walking in the gospels, the triune God, the visible image of the invisible God, co-creator, that we see his heart and just ponder and just imagine why were sinners drawn to Jesus? Why were sinners, was it because he was a sin management guy? He comes over and says, oh, let me help manage your sin. Here we go, here we go. No, he did tell people not to sin sometimes, but his invitation was to come. And he pointed to something so glorious, his love, his embrace, a kingdom that blew their minds. It was like the world turned upside down. He said, come, follow me, let's hang out. This is Jesus. It's the same Jesus who says today to you, to me, come. You weary, you tired? Tired of carrying those heavy burdens? Come on, I'll give you rest. But you gotta do something, come on. You gotta walk with me. You gotta take this yoke and we'll go together. You gotta learn from me. I'll teach you. Humble yourself. You don't know what's right. You think you do, but I do. I made everything and I'll teach you. He's given us his word. He's given us salvation. He endured the cross. And I think about the gift that our sin is forgiven. In the first service, I sang a line from it as well with my soul about its sin, and I'll do it for you here. And I told him I didn't know what key to start in. So it might be too high at one point, but I'll just sing this line. But a captivating line. And the song was written out of suffering, out of loss of family members. He says, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Think about this. Your sin, not just past sin, not just present sin, but future sin, all of your sin has been taken, removed, nailed to the cross. It is finished. And God places the righteousness of Christ on us. And this is a gift adopted into his family. He gives us the gift of his word, the gift of salvation. He gives us this gift that we have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside. We have Christ in us and we're in Christ. There's 
Pastor Louis Giglio some years ago had a Tupperware illustration. He had this bigger piece of Tupperware and it said, Christ. And then he had a smaller piece of Tupperware that re represented us. And he said, you know, the scriptures teach we're in Christ. And then he had an even smaller Tupperware that was Christ again. He said, you know what? Christ, the scriptures teacher, is in us. And we're in Christ. And he put the lids on. It's like, I think we're secure, man. Inside, outside, surrounded. This is who we are. Christ is in us, the hope of glory. And we are in Christ. He gives us the good gift of Christian community. And that's part of that coming out of hiding. I said about pastors James and Scott, those two dear friends who walk with me, that even last week, it wasn't one circumstance, it was just a series of circumstances. I, I don't know why, but physiologically, emotionally, all sorts of things, I was just tasting despair more deeply than I have in years. And so I know I reach out to them, shoot a text, and we talk and they remind me, hey, God's gotta say, help rehearse my story. Remember these times, God was faithful, God is faithful. Let us know if you need anything else. Let, let us journey with you. That's what this community is for, to support each other, to point each other to the truth, but in a way that is loving and encouraging. And the good gift, we are children of the King. In failure, we rejoice that there is grace and mercy. In victory, we say, Lord, thank you that I've, I'm learning more how to choose that which I truly want anyway. And through it all, we look to Jesus. It says it in Hebrews. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And what do we do? Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the author and perfecter. For the joy set before him, for the joy set before our Savior, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Considered him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It's God's desire. And maybe you're here today and you've lost heart because of suffering, because of your own sin, whatever it may be. Maybe you are weary. Maybe you've been beaten up over and over again. Maybe the church has failed you miserably in the past. I, I could go on and on and on. But God's heart is saying, take courage. Don't give up. Come to me, come to me. And he gives us this sacred symbol that we practice every week and it can become kind of rote and habitual, but to be reminded each week when we take communion, we're reminded of the very heart of God. His desire was to make a way for us for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, his body was broken for you and for me. And he's saying, remember, remember what this points back to. Remember what it points forward to. Remember what it means today. In the same way, he takes a cup of wine after supper and says, this cup is the new covenant sealed by the shedding of my blood. It is finished. The curtain in the temple is ripped into two from top to bottom. We have access. And so we come 
and be reminded that this is the invitation for our lives. Come to Jesus. Our tradition here at Sojourn is to break off a piece of the bread, dip it into the juice or wine, whichever your conscience permits. And, and then the invitation for non-Christians, if you're not a follower of Christ, is different. The scriptures teach to not partake in this. But it would be a joy to be able to sit and talk about what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to shift these desires that you have towards the greatest desire that we all have. And this is God himself. Let me pray for us.